0: As we begin today, I'd like to welcome back our students and volunteers from student camp. I haven't received a full report, but I have heard that based on what God did last week at student camp, we'll be celebrating in the coming days, five baptisms. So we rejoice in that, praise God. So so today we have a lot of ground to cover. 35 verses in just a few minutes, so we're going to hit the ground running Take out your pens right out of the gate. We're going to fill in some blanks. All right, y'all ready? Buckle up. All right, so we're about halfway through the book of Acts. We find ourselves today in Acts chapter 15. Today, we'll look at this Jerusalem council and why it matters, why it mattered back in the early church, and why it still matters for us today. So, as you know, throughout history, there have been lots of church councils. These councils meet to basically make big decisions. Some of that regards theology and doctrine. And so, as far as church councils, the Jerusalem Council was the first, there's your first blank, it was the first council and it was the most significant of all church councils. And the reason is, that council answered the questions of all, of all questions. And that question is, what is the gospel? Or more specifically, what must a person do in order to be saved? That's what the council is dealing with. And that's really the ultimate question of life, it's one we still struggle with today, how What must a person do to be saved? You know, since the birth of the church, we uh, have had an enemy who has labored to perpetuate a false gospel. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. There's false gospels all around us. And the problem is a twisted or distorted or false gospel is no gospel at all. False gospels lead directly to hell. In fact, one commentator said it this way, a proclamation of the good news laced with heresy will, like a drink mixed with poison, Kill the hearer. False gospels lead to eternal damnation. Only the true, biblical, God given gospel leads to eternal life and glory. So, as we arrive in Acts 15, the scary thing is those teaching a false gospel don't even realize it. They're convinced in their minds that their gospel is the true gospel. All right, so today we'll be reminded of the true gospel. And in particular, we'll look at what role do works play in our justification, or do they play a role at all? And so today, the issue the Jerusalem Council dealt with was, was not if God wanted to save the Gentiles. It was clear that he did, and he was. The question is, how were Gentiles to be saved? Could they enter the kingdom of God directly, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or, did they have to enter the kingdom of God through Judaism? That's the question the council dealt with. And a secondary issue the council dealt with is, how was fellowship to be maintained between Jewish believers and Gentile believers? So the council met to answer the question, how can law-observing Jewish Christians and law-ignoring Gentile Christians exist together in harmony and actually have fellowship with one another? These were critical issues that the church had to resolve, so this Jerusalem council met to resolve those issues And the decision had the potential to split the church. It could have resulted in a Jewish congregation and a Gentile congregation. Praise God, that's not what happened. We'll see how it plays out in just a moment. So let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray this morning that you would set our hearts and minds on you. Help us to set aside all distractions. Help us today to be receptive to your word. May your word do its work on us and teach us, uh, reproof us, encourage us transform us. Pray today that your word goes forth in the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us this morning to understand not just about the historical Jerusalem Council, but help us to understand why it matters for us today. Help us to discern if we, like the Judaizers, somehow twisted or distorted the one true gospel. Pray that we as a church would both know and protect the one true gospel of grace that will continue to transform us, it will perpetuate the gospel to the community, and the world around us. Now we thank you, draw near to us. Now we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So as we left off last week in chapter 14, we saw that Paul and Barnabas give a report of their missionary journey to Antioch. Verse 27, we read that they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So to this point, things seem to be going well for the church. All is good. And of course, the enemy is not happy about that. So here in Acts chapter 15, the enemy's false teaching is going to come to a head. It's going to, be, it's going to be dealt with. And just to remind you, up to this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the Spirit came at Pentecost, the church was birthed, the gospel saturated Jerusalem and moved beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even dirty Samaritans and Gentiles were getting converted. That's what was happening. So we see basically Acts eight the Great Commission is being fulfilled that God, by His grace, through His Spirit, through His people, even through persecution and suffering, is spreading the church to the ends of the earth. So that's what's happened up to this point. Unfortunately, at this point, many Jewish believers, what we call Judaizers, have the idea that a person can't just convert straight from being a Gentile to being a Christian. In their minds, you must go through Judaism to become a Christian. And so these Judaizers could not believe that a Gentile could bypass circumcision and the law of Moses and become equals with them in the church that was beyond their imagination and so they couldn't understand how they as God's chosen people were somehow equals with these gentile converts without these converts going through Judaism so that was the problem Uh, these Judaizers did not understand the amazing grace of God in Christ Jesus so the problem that we arrive at today is that the teaching that a gentile believer must convert to Judaism In order to become a Christian, undermines the gospel of grace by adding works. The Judaizers' gospel formula was Jesus plus works of the law equals justification. That was their gospel formula. That's what the Protestant Reformation battled against. Their battle cry was sola gratia. Salvation is not by works, it's by grace alone. Through faith alone and Christ alone. So today you may say, well, we're, we're not Catholic, we're good. Well, not so fast. Consider this question. In your own understanding of the gospel, based on your own experience, is there anything in your mind that you have added to Jesus in order to be justified? Think about that for a moment. Is your gospel equation, your gospel formula, Jesus plus walking an aisle, Jesus plus praying a prayer, Jesus plus cleaning up my life equals justification. What's your gospel formula today? As we know, there's only one correct gospel formula. That's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? So to be clear, the result of justification, you know, as a result of God's grace saving you, you're going to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized. You will do all those things, but the question is, Where do those things play into the gospel formula? In your mind, is it because you did that, you're saved? So we have to make sure we get works on the right side of the equation. And for us, you know, God clarifies this all in Ephesians chapter 2. And bear with me, this is all going to set the stage for Acts chapter 15. So as we know, Ephesians 2 begins with the bad news. You know, the gospel is only good news when we understand the bad news. So Ephesians 2 begins, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the default position of humanity. Before Christ saved us, we were spiritually dead in sin, following the way of the world, following Satan, led by our fleshly desires, and we were heading straight to hell. That's the default position of all mankind. And if that were the end of the story, if that were where God left us, we'd all be doomed. Because up to verse 3, we're helpless. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Praise God for verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, So that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice the terminology Paul uses. It's as if it's already happened. That's how sure it is when you're in Christ Jesus. So God made us alive together with Christ by his grace. And notice in verse 7, we're going to experience his grace for all of eternity. So, if we add any sort of work to that grace, grace is no longer grace. By definition, if you add law or works to grace, grace is no longer grace. By grace we have been saved through faith. So here is the correct gospel. Here's how we're saved according to the Apostle Paul, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, So not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, some people look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 and say, okay, I get it. Salvation is a gift. But I have to muster up the faith to receive it. I believe that's the wrong interpretation. Saving faith is a gift. If you turn faith into a work, then grace is no longer grace. You know, if you muster up the faith, you know, that, that's your own doing. You have right to boast. And the problem is, by the way, when you're spiritually dead, you don't have the capacity to muster up any faith. So we can't view faith as a work. Saving faith is also a gift along with salvation. When we actually realize that, we give the God the glory he deserves. If you're mine, if you, can, if you contributed anything to your salvation, you have a right to boast. Let me make this really as practical as I can. As you share your testimony, how does it go? Is it, well, I'm saved because, because I had faith. I did this, I did this, I did this. Is it about you or is your testimony? I'm saved because God saved me. Think about that. Are you saved because God removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh? Are you saved because God removed the veil and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Are you saved because God adopted you into his family? It's like the song goes... As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, God looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. If you have a problem with God's sovereignty and salvation, just note these verses down. Jesus said in John 6:44, He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In a couple of weeks, we'll get to Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We'll meet Lydia. So listen to this, <clears throat> Acts sixteen fourteen. a certain woman named Lydia was listening to Paul and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things she heard. Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So who began the good work? Was it us through our faith or did God begin it? God began it. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption? That just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So again, as you share your testimony, your God story, are you boasting in yourself because of what you did to be saved, or are you boasting in the Lord? Consider that. And again, good works will be the outflow of your justification. That's why Paul says in verse ten. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if I haven't been clear, our good works do not at all contribute to our justification. So as we get to this Jerusalem council, that's sort of what they're dealing with. So um, basically what was happening up until the council, of Paul, Paul and Barnabas were on their missionary journeys preaching the true gospel, but these Judaizers were coming behind them, And basically distorting their gospel with a false gospel. So Paul and Barnabas were teaching grace alone through faith alone, Christ alone. Gentiles were being converted. Then these Judaizers came behind them and said, you know, what they said isn't actually right. In order to be truly Christian, you have to get circumcised and convert to Judaism and basically obey the law of Moses. So you can imagine the confusion. These new believers, well, which is it? You know, do I add to my salvation through works or do I not? Am I saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Or do I need to add my own good works and get circumcised? And they probably not even know the law of Moses. You know? So you can imagine the confusion these new Gentile believers dealt with. And so this council met to figure this whole thing out. All right. Paul dealt with the same issue in Romans 3 and in his letter to the Galatians. And So when Paul addressed the Galatians, speaking of these Judaizers, he says in chapter 5, verse 12, I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. I want to explain exactly what that means. But in chapter 6, verses 11, he goes on to say this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So Paul is very passionate about this subject, and he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to this world. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it's the power unto salvation, both for the Jew and also to the Greek. So the power of salvation is not circumcision or the law, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. A Gentile does not have to be circumcised to be saved. A Gentile does not have to convert to Judaism to be saved. Paul says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And when we get to Acts 16, we'll see the story of the Philippian jailer. And so this jailer says to Paul and some others, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's their response. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Nothing about circumcision, nothing about your own good works. We simply believe. So all that to say, we're at a point in Acts where the gospel of grace is being undermined and threatened. And the foundation of the Christian faith is being threatened by the Judaizers. So let's get to our text. Verses 1 through 6, we see the point of dissension. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So again, the Judaizers did not understand the gospel of grace. Again, grace is God's divine favor, freely given, unmerited. If you do anything to earn grace, grace is no longer grace. So the Judaizers argue that unless you're circumcised according to the law, you can't be saved. Again, that's a false gospel. And so when Paul addresses this problem with the Galatians, listen to what he says. To the Galatians he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So in Galatians, Paul uses the fiercest language he could have used against the most prominent threat of the church, a false gospel. If you preach a false gospel, be accursed. He continued in chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? So these Judaizers were essentially saying to these Gentiles, okay, I know you've heard that Jesus' perfect life, his death, his resurrection, you know, was enough to accomplish your salvation, but that wasn't really enough. Jesus needs your help, okay? He needs you to do your part. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law. Do you see what's going on here? They're adding to a gospel of grace works, which totally undermines the gospel. That was the issue here. So you can imagine based on what Paul wrote to the Galatians and in Romans chapter 3, you know, he this debate we're reading about was probably pretty pretty intense. He was very passionate about protecting the one true gospel. So verse 2 says Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, being the Judaizers. Again, for Paul and Barnabas everything was at stake. The gospel was at stake. And so as they debated, they did not come to a consensus. There was division. The two sides could not agree. So as a result of that, the church appointed Paul, Barnabas, and others to seek the counsel of the apostles in Jerusalem. And so en route to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas spread great joy to other believers by sharing what God had done. When they got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed and declared, um, they declared all God had done with them. Then verse 5, listen to this. It says, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, is it, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so what we see here is these Pharisees, these Jews, are genuine converts. They're genuine believers, okay? In other words, it's possible for a genuine believer to spread a false gospel. These Judaizers allowed their background and culture... To, to twist and distort the gospel. They couldn't bring themselves to, to, to think that, you know, for all their lives they'd been following the law of Moses, you know, 613 commands, you know, very strictly. They were God's chosen people. And now somehow, because of God's grace, these Gentiles who were pagans who didn't observe the law could now be equals with them in the, in the same church. They, they couldn't comprehend that. So their culture and background caused them to twist and distort the gospel, even with good intentions. One commentator said this, each of us has experienced some doctrinal or practical distortion because of past experience or environment. The challenge is to identify those points of error or misemphasis before we drift too far away from Christ. You know, so as believers, I assume I'm talking mostly to believers today, you know, think about even your own conversion. You know, mine was I was nine years old here at Calvary. I understood the basics that I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior, I can't save myself. Um, But if I had gone out on a missionary trail at nine years old, I may have been sharing a, a distorted gospel. So God commands new believers to study the word, to dig deeper into the gospel, to understand the faith so that we don't unknowingly spread a false gospel. So we're responsible to understand the gospel by which we've been saved. So the Jerusalem Council is helping these Judaizers correct their wrong doctrine, their wrong perception of the gospel. So in verse 7 we read, after there had been much debate, Luke doesn't give us the details of the debate, but he uses three speeches. We have the uh, speech of the Apostle Peter in verses 7 through 11, we have Paul and Barnabas' speech referenced in verse 12, and then we have the speech of the Apostle James in verses 13 through 21. So let's look at Peter's speech first. You can imagine you know, Peter and his personality, he couldn't sit there and listen any longer. He was the first to jump up and to speak. Here's what he says. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter took the council back to the early days of the church. He reminded them that God made a choice a long time ago that through His ministry the Gentiles would hear the gospel and believe. In other words, Peter saying to this council, "This issue has already been settled. God's already settled it." Acts ten, God saved Cornelius and his household apart from circumcision, apart from works of the law, apart from ritual. So this issue has already been settled. So Peter's point is simple. The Judaizers had no right to require of the Gentiles what God had not required of them. Now consider this. The Judaizers could have argued, well, you know, Cornelius and his household, they weren't really saved because they didn't get circumcised. They didn't observe the law. That could have been the argument. But notice what what we see here. Look what Peter did. He demolished that argument. He said this, God, who knows the heart, bore witness that their salvation was genuine. These people received the same Holy Spirit that the Jews had received. That was God affirming that their salvation was legitimate. Only truly redeemed people received the Holy Spirit of God. There's only one Holy Spirit, so there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. So despite their backgrounds, the Jewish background, the Gentile background, they were equals at the foot of the cross. One commentator said this, the overarching theme of the book of acts is that there is no second-class citizenship in the new testament community. Samaritan believers, god-fearing believers such as Cornelius's household, and Gentile believers such as the Ephesians were all numbered among the people of God and had equal status in the new testament church. There is no preference for the Jew or the Greek, the male or the female. All people are on even ground at the foot of the cross. I thought that was a fitting opening to our service. What we see is the gospel unites people of different races, different backgrounds, different cultures. And so we, as we meet today, we've got brothers and sisters meeting across the globe to worship the same God through the same Lord. So that's what the gospel does. It unites people of any background. If the gospel can unite Jews and Gentiles, you know, the most divided people, the gospel can unite anyone. And so a a diverse church displays the glory of God. Supernatural unity among God's people is His plan. It's a powerful message of the world, too. Peter went on in verses 10 and 11 to warn the Judaizers not to put God to the test. It was not their place or our place to question the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. Who are we to question God's gospel? Who are we to distort God's gospel? It's not our place to put God to the test and question His gospel. And Peter also pointed out the absurdity of the Judaizers to impose on the Gentiles what did not work for them not only did the law of moses not work for the jews they rejoiced to be freed from it yet now they're imposing that same law on gentiles it's absurd it makes no sense no not one of peter's hearers in this council will save through the work of the law so peter closes speech with a beautiful affirmation of salvation by grace alone he says this we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So whether Jews or Gentiles, whatever your background, God's plan is salvation through the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So as Peter concluded, a turning point comes in verse 12, and we see that the multitude becomes silent. So during that silence, Barnabas and Paul seized the moment and verified what Peter said By relating the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So the miracles of their first missionary journey were recited, and the council was amazed. And then, after Paul and Barnabas finished, it was now James' turn. So James was apparently the moderator of this assembly. He uh, let Paul speak, he let Barnabas speak, he let Peter speak, and now it's his turn. Remember James, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, He rose to prominence in the Jerusalem church and served as its primary leader. So one commentator said in his New Testament letter, James would later emphasize that saving faith always results in good works and that heavenly wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So we're about to get a dose of that sort of wisdom from James right now here in this council. You know, the Judaizers thought that James would be on their side. So you can imagine their hopes are high. James is about to set Peter and Paul and Barnabas straight by what he's about to say. So they had high hopes. Let's see what happens. Verse 13. After they, Paul and Barnabas, finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. By the way, councils, church, Councils in history have no authority apart from the word of God. So we're about to see that even in this council, they're going to quote the prophet Amos from the Old Testament. So verse 15, James says, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James is essentially making it clear that God's plan from the very beginning was to save the Gentiles. This is nothing new, and they should know that. So quoting Amos, James was saying that God's people will consist of two concentric groups. We see at the core would be Israel, the ten of David. And gathered around them would be the Gentiles, the remnant of mankind, who would share the messianic blessings without becoming Jewish converts. So James made it clear that, that everything happening in Acts was just as the scriptures prophesied. So John Stott says this, Thus James, whom the circumcision party had claimed as their champion, declared himself in full agreement with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. The inclusion of the Gentiles was not a divine afterthought, but foretold by the prophets. Scripture itself confirmed the facts of the missionaries' experience. There was an agreement between what God had done through his apostles and what he had said through his prophets. The correspondence between scripture and experience between the witness of prophets and apostles was for James conclusive, and so now he's ready to give his judgment. So in verse 19 and on, we see his judgment. This is really kind of the heart of the whole scene. Verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses... Has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So with the major doctrinal issue resolved, again God resolved the doctrinal issue a long time ago. James moves to more practical matters of fellowship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. You know, James in this council didn't want the Jews to trouble the Gentiles, but at the same time, he didn't want the Gentiles to trouble the Jews and lead them to stumble. So the danger was the Gentiles and their freedom in Christ, you know, might exercise their freedom and cause Jews to stumble. So James essentially gives advice to both groups. To the Pharisaical Jewish believers, he said basically, Lay off these Gentiles, stop giving them trouble. And then to the Gentile believers, he gave three restrictions. One, stay away from anything that has to do with idols. Two, avoid fornication. Three, do not partake of the meat that has been strangled or has blood in it. We'll come back to that in a moment. For now, let's move on to verses 22 through 29. This is the council's proclamation to Gentile believers. So in verse 22, we see that after James finished speaking, the Jerusalem council deliberated, chose men from among themselves to be ambassadors for the council and take a letter and spread it throughout the area. So we see that Paul and Barnabas will be accompanied by Judas and Silas, who are both on the council, to deliver this letter. So verse 23 picks up the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it is to seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So that was the contents of the letter. So basically this letter, the conclusions were basically the same thing that James suggested. So this letter answered the doctrinal question raised by the Antioch church and gave proper instructions on how to maintain fellowship between Jews and Gentile believers. For some of you perceptive folks out there, you may see something here that seems a little bit problematic. You know, it seems here that Gentile believers are, are obligated or required to abstain from certain meats. And the reason that may seem problematic is that later on we know that Paul gave specific instructions, Romans 14 15, about Christian liberties, about being free you know, from having to obey these laws. And so we'll uh, reconcile that in a moment, but for right now I do want to look at Romans 14 and 15 and some of these principles of Christian liberty that Paul lays out a few years later. So the Roman church had the same issues that we're dealing with here in this council, so this is what Paul writes to them. Uh, he gives essentially four principles noted by Sinclair Ferguson. Principle one... Christian liberty must never be flaunted. So obviously, we're free in Christ from the law of Moses. Christ pronounced all food clean in Mark 7. But we do not need to exercise our liberty in order to enjoy it. Paul elsewhere asks some penetrating questions to those who insist on exercising their liberty. Does this really build up others? Is it really liberating you or has it actually begun to enslave you? The subtle truth is that the Christian who has to exercise his liberty is probably in bondage, as he insists on that. So Paul says in Romans 14:17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's principle one. Principle two As those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. Specifically those that come from secondary cultural traditions. So in Acts, this meant not forcing a Jewish lifestyle upon Gentiles. For us, what does that mean for us? It's not spelled out, but it means that we don't force our lifestyle upon new converts. You know, the things that are not spelled out in Scripture, the things where we have liberty, we can't take those liberties and enforce them on new believers. Otherwise, we're doing what the Judaizers did. Kent Hughes said it this way, we too often put others through the, pla- the paces of our own heritage before we fully accept them as brothers and sisters. Dr. Howard Hendricks remarked that he grew up in a legalistic home where the use of fingernail polish would condemn a person to hell. And he said later on, in a book he wrote in the 1980s, he says, I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946 but in 1982, I'm still wrestling with it emotionally. Non-biblical restrictions take a toll on people. If God is welcome a person in Christ, so should we. Of course, God's not going to leave them as they are. He will transform them. But he does not make their pattern of conduct the basis for his welcome. We come to Jesus as we are. That's principle two. Number three. Christian liberty ought never to be used in such a way that you become a stumbling block to another Christian. Romans fourteen thirteen. So we're given liberty in Christ to serve others, not to indulge our own preferences. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those who don't have the law. 1 Corinthians 8.13, Paul says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul humbly submitted himself to the people around him in order that the gospel might move forward without being interrupted. Think about your own life. Is that is that your goal? Is that your intention? You know, if Paul's actions caused any offense, he abstained from those behaviors, even if they weren't sinful. Al Muller noted that Paul's attitude and James's command in Acts 15 call all believers to subordinate personal preferences to the needs of others. And I ask you today: Is that your mentality? You know, the Christian life is not about being selfish. It's about being selfless and serving others. So is that your attitude today? If there's something you're doing that you know is causing someone else to stumble, are you going to do it anyway because that's what you prefer? Or are you going to do what Paul did, what Christ commands, and submit yourself as servants to them so that the gospel may, may reach them? Principle four. Christian liberty requires this perspective. We ought not to please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. Romans 15, one through 3. Martin Luther wrote this. A Christian person is the most free person of all and subject to no one. Very next statement. A Christian person is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. You see, that's the tension of living out our Christian liberties. You know, we're, we're free, but we're also servant of all. So those are some principles that Paul lays out in Romans 14 and 15. And those are principles that we are to live by today. So we know in Scripture, a lot of sins are black and white. You know, do this, don't do that. But there's, there's a lot of gray areas. There's areas we have to exercise liberty and ask ourselves, is what we're doing wise and beneficial or is it a stumbling block for those around us? In other words, what's sin for you may not be sin for your neighbor in some areas. You know, the Christian life is not about do's and don'ts. It's about walking in the Spirit day by day, moment by moment, being led by the Spirit. And as you do that... You'll be operating properly. And as you do that, you'll be free to do some things that others are not free to do. And you'll be restricted from doing some things that others are not restricted from doing. You understand? Let me just give a practical illustration of all this so maybe it'll make more sense. One pastor told this story. He says, Years ago, a cause friend of mine fell in love with ping pong. There was a ping pong table in one of the dorm rooms. And he spent hours each day playing. He was obsessed with it to the point that it ate into his study time and affected his grades. One day he came to me about, uh, about it in earnest and was repentant and said, The Spirit of God has convicted me that it's a sin for me to play ping pong. At that point in his life, playing ping pong had become sinful for him because it was bad stewardship. However, that does not mean that there is anything inherently evil about playing ping pong. The same pastor went on to say, there are churches all over the world that have added to the law of God and bound men where God has left them free. Some people have grown up believing that wearing lipstick or playing cards or going to the movies are among the worst of sins. When I've been asked about this, I've said, if you believe it's a sin to wear lipstick, then for you, it's a sin to wear lipstick because you're acting against your conscience. That's essentially what Paul is dealing with in his writings and these councils." And so to eat certain meats was not inherently wrong. But if it caused others to stumble, it was wrong. It was a matter of conscience. So to circle all the way back around to that question, you know, is there, is there a, um, a disagreement here in Scripture? No, there's not. There, there's no disagreements in Scripture. And So here's how one theologian reconciled this whole thing. He says, The early church in Acts 15 was saying that at such a critical moment, When the Gentiles were just coming into full communion with the church and bringing with them the baggage of eating meat offered to idols, the best piece of wisdom was to abstain. Obviously, that was not meant as a perpetual obligation placed upon the church for all ages. Here in Acts 15, we have an example of decisions that were made temporarily as a matter of prudence, which we know from the rest of the New Testament, what we just looked at in Romans, did not go on to perpetuity other than the prohibition against fornication. So I think that's how we resolve those two texts. All right, verses 30 through 35. Let's finish up here. So these verses contain the response of the churches to this letter from the council, and these verses reveal what happens when the people of God encounter a correct theology. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas... Who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and after they had spent some time they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So you can imagine, you know, this congregation was gathered, ready to hear this letter, and imagine the anticipation. Like they're gonna understand, is my salvation legitimate or is it not? You know, did I am I saved because I came to God through Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, or am I not saved yet because I still have to get circumcised and then carry out the law of Moses? You can imagine the anticipation. And so we see there are basically four responses to the letter that John MacArthur noted. The first was celebration. You can imagine the relief of praise God, our salvation is legitimate. We don't have to go through all these works to become a Christian. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. The second response was consolation because of the letter's encouragement. They no longer needed to fear that their salvation was illegitimate. It was now affirmed. Legalism produces fear, guilt, and pride, while grace alone brings comfort and peace. The third response was confirmation. Judas and Silas added their own encouraging words to those of the letter. And then the final response was continuation. And as a side note, you'll notice if you have an ESV Bible, um you don't see a verse 34 it goes straight from 33 to 35 and the reason is verse 34 is not in our best manuscripts but if you do have verse 34 it probably says something like it seemed good to Silas to remain there but regardless of what Silas did in verse 35 notes that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord so Paul and Barnabas picked up where they left off they Continue their ministry of proclaiming the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So, as a conclusion, the early church survived its greatest challenge yet. It survived the attempts of the enemy to distort the gospel, the foundation of Christianity. It overcame that threat and, and moved on. So, with the gospel preserved, fellowship maintained, the church experienced its greatest days yet. So, few final takeaways the jerusalem council should prompt us to do at least two things the first is to assess our own understanding of the gospel again in your understanding of the gospel your own experience whatever is there anything in your mind that you did to earn salvation and again if that's the case then that's a a works-based salvation you did something to earn salvation salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and Christ alone. Anything we add to what Jesus did, we do that, we undermine the gospel itself. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He doesn't need our help. Amen? All right, so at the end of the day, the only correct answer to the question, you know, if you encounter God face-to-face one day and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What's your response going to be? Well, God, you know, I, I walked and now I, I did this and this and this. Is that going to be your response? Your response should be, you let me in because my faith is in Christ alone. Jesus did for me what I can't do myself. Jesus lived the perfect life I could never live. He died the death I deserve. He resurrected from the grave, defeated sin, death, and hell. And through him, I'm in your presence today. So as we answer that question, we, we don't boast in ourselves. We, we point to Jesus. He's the only reason that God's led us into heaven. His grace alone. It's uh, what the theologians call that great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, he gives us his perfection, his righteousness. The second thing this council should prompt us to do is to realize the inseparable bond between right theology and Christian fellowship. So-called fellowship, apart from sound doctrine, is really no fellowship at all. Al Muller noted, Doctrine and theology, when aimed at ushering believers' hearts into greater worship of God, will not harden a congregation. Rather, it will strengthen and encourage the faith of the body. Sound teaching of right theology fosters Christ-exalting fellowship. And I praise God that I'm in a church where our pastor, our elders, understand just that. One final takeaway. As believers today, we're no longer bound by the law of Moses. There's only one law that we're bound to, and that's the law of love. Jesus said in John 13:34 to his disciples after he would washed their feet, he said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you are also to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another in other words, the 613 commands of the Old Testament are summed up in one command, love others as you love others, you're, you're fulfilling the law and I love what uh, one pastor commented on how this is practical in his own life he says in our house there is love and I thank God for that and so we don't have a lot of laws I don't need a sign that says remember do not hit your wife remember do not punch your children I don't need laws like that the reason I don't need a whole list of rules is because the love that I have for these those people precludes the necessity of writing out specifics He says, I try to meet my family's needs. If they have something they need, I try to supply that. If they need discipline, I discipline them. If they're sad or hurting or there's pain or tears, I comfort them. And I don't feel like you must comfort your children because that's one of the rules. When they hurt, I hurt. When they have needs, I try to meet their needs. When they need time, I try to give them time. That's the law of love. So you ask, well, how do I love like that? Paul tells us in Galatians 5 walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's where I'm going to end. So, as I pray, the band's going to come forward. If you need to respond in any way, please do. But know that the response time is always open. It doesn't have to be right now. Um, I'll be at the Next Steps table in the back, or just uh, feel free to respond any time to any message you hear at Calvary. So, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you that we don't have to add to the perfect work of our Lord Jesus. Again, he, he's done the work for us. It's by his perfection that we're saved. And as we attempt to add to the sufficiency of Jesus anything, we totally undermine the gospel. Thank you for the example of the Judaizers and uh, what we need to avoid uh, turning the gospel into something that's uh, legalistic So may we today rejoice in the gospel of grace. May that give us great freedom. May we as a body protect the gospel and may we exercise our Christian liberties in a way that um, glorifies you. May we not be a stumbling block to anyone. I pray that we, uh, if there's new believers in here that uh, put forth the effort to study your word, to dig deeper into the gospel, may none of us in this room be guilty of ever perpetuating a gospel contrary to the one we've just heard that we as your people realize that there's not power in legalism or any works-based religion. The power is in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That by grace, through faith in our Lord Jesus, we can be saved and be right with you. That'll help us to under- understand that more deeply each day. And we think uh, we know the result of that would be to give you the proper honor and the proper glory. So we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Uh, may we as a church honor him as we protect the gospel. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.